Bibles to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 tonight. And the topic this evening in these verses deal with Samson's marital pursuit. Or you could say Samson's unholy pursuit. The whole story of Samson and everything he does involves his obsession with unholy women. There were three in particular. First, there was the woman from Timnath, and that's the one we'll look at tonight. Then there was the harlot in Gaza. And last but not least, Delilah of the Valley of Sorek. If you took out the stories of Samson's involvement with these three women, there wouldn't be any Bible story about Samson. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 would not be in the book of Judges. These women were the ruin of Samson. And with their, with their importance in Samson's story in Scripture, it makes Samson's story mostly a story about a man ruining himself and his ministry for God by having these flings with unholy women. Samson has so much potential but his involvement with these unholy women really limited his potential. And it caused the premature failure of his service for God and his life. Romance was his ruin because he romanced with the wrong people. And that's the way it's been for many people in every age. So the first unholy woman that Samson got involved with was the Philistine woman in Timnath. So let's begin in chapter 14 with verses 1 through 3. And it reads, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and he told his father and mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. You can't really say anything good or positive about this unholy, unequally yoked relationship between Samson and this woman of Timnah. The whole affair spoke of evil. And there's no way that you can applaud Samson's pursuit of this Philistine girl. What Samson did was bad from start to finish in pursuing this woman. Samson's choice for a wife was determined mostly by what he saw. And I hate to say it, typical guy. He saw her, he liked what he saw, and he says, I want her to be my wife. He went to Timnah, the Bible says, and he saw her. Then he tells his parents, hey, I've seen a woman and I want her for my wife. Because it says he liked what he saw. And again, notice what it says. Get her for me because she pleases me well. Doesn't know her, never talked to her, but she pleases me well. Pleased his, he, he, she pleased his flesh, his, his, you know, what he saw. The Philistine woman from Timnah was attractive to the eye. And that was all that mattered to Samson. 
So that was the, the, the deciding factor for pursuing this woman romantically. Later on, it says in verse 7 that he enjoyed talking to her as well. Temptation is always making its appeal through the eye. And boy, does the advertising business know this. They make everything look so attractive. And again, and it can, and it can in the long run be very you know, harmful to you. I mean, look how they advertise alcohol and, and, and different things that, that you know, end up really hurting people. And so the, the, it, it appeals to the eye and how effective that has been. And it's still effective when it comes to romance. So the devil will see to it that there are, and it works, again, both sexes. It work, you know, it, it, the devil will see to it that there, are all, that there are generally plenty of pretty faces around in the ungodly crowd to tempt the godly. And if Christians aren't careful and they put too much emphasis on looks, the temptation of the pretty face will ensnare them. Because outward beauty is a very strong atta- attraction as Samson's failures and the failures of many others attest to. T. DeWitt Talmadge's interesting comment on Samson, letting the eye determine who he would pursue romantically, is very, uh, a very fitting quote here. D. DeWitt Talmadge said this, Don't make the mistake that Samson made in letting the eye settle the question here in regarding marriage. He who has no reason for his wifely choice except a pretty face is like a man who should buy a farm because of the flowers in the front yard. Beauty, now beauty is not sinful, all right? It's not sinful in its face, in, in itself. But outward beauty must never take priority over inward beauty. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5, says, Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself <clears throat> instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. It's the internal more than the external. If the godly want to stay away from big problems in marriage, let them put their top priority on inward beauty. Not outward beauty when choosing their life mate. Inward beauty is the beauty of the soul. It's the beauty of a holy relationship with God. It's a beautiful relationship of righteousness, of character, and it will help to make a strong and healthy marriage. Outward beauty is none of these things. And it doesn't do very much in helping to make a good marriage. There may be a lot of beauty in the, of the skin, but no beauty of the soul. So in, Tam, so in Samson's pursuing this relationship with this woman... He showed disobedience in a couple of ways. His romantic pursuit of this woman was disobedience to God's law for an Israelite. And it was secondly, disobedience to God's law for a Nazarite. And Samson was both. He was an Israelite and he was a Nazarite. God had made it very clear to his people that they were not to marry wives from the idolatrous people of the land. Exodus 34, 12 through 16, and Deuteronomy 34, 12 through 16. So for Samson to look for a wife from the Philistines was without a doubt wrong against the law of God, the word of God. It was clearly disobedience of the law of God for the Israelites. So this marriage ban between God's people and the world has always been God's will. It's not anything new. 
And it's not just for the Israelites, but for all of his people of every age. And this truth, you'll find it all through Scripture, New Testament and Old Testament. All through the Bible, it's either by command or by principle or by example that we are warned again and again about the unequal yoke in marriage. For example, in Genesis 27, 46, you'll see it here by experience. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, who were ungodly Canaanites, who Esau married, and they became a, a, a weariness to Rebekah. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites from the nations, notice these were women from the nations, whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. And Paul speaks very clearly in his letters about believers marrying only, about believers marrying only believers. He said in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, only in the Lord should they marry. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So nobody can ever say that the Bible does not warn against pursuing an intimate relationship with somebody that, that you're unequally yoked with, with somebody that's unholy. God strongly forbids these kind of relationships. So for a saved person, To pursue a relationship with the unsaved is undeniable disobedience to God's word. In pursuing this relationship, Samson also disobeyed the laws of a Nazarite. In Numbers 6-2, it spoke of a Nazarite. He was to be separate. They were to separate themselves to the Lord. So the whole idea of being a Nazarite was to give more of one's life to serving God. But to do this, a Nazarite separated from more things than a normal Israelite did. And this separation wouldn't only enable him to serve more, but the additional restriction would also be a constant reminder to be faithful to his increased consecration to God's service. So in pursuing the Philistine woman, Samson was not separating from, but he was mixing with the unclean and the unholy. So this disobeyed the whole purpose of being a Nazarite because it would work against him serving the Lord and rather than working to help him serve the Lord even more. And as mentioned in the beginning of this chapter, his pursuit of the holy women not only hindered his service, but it also eventually brought his service for God to a halt. Every believer needs to be careful that they pursue relationships with only the godly. Not only to be assured of the blessings of God and a good marriage and a good home, but also to help in their service for God. Now, many people have been, you know, greatly hindered in serving God because they weren't careful about their relationships. They either married an unsafe person and as a result were too, too crippled and disqualified to serve much at all. Or they married a professing Christian who has so much of the spirit in the world in them that they greatly hindered any service attempted for God. And, and, you know, and I've seen that over the years, and especially in young people that are on fire for God. And, and they're serving, and, and they're just you know, on fire for the Lord, and, and they have great you know, hopes to, in serving God. And then they, they, 
they meet somebody, nothing wrong with that. They fall in love, nothing wrong with that. They're believers. But a lot of times, it just, their pursuit of serving God, it just, it dwindles. And they're no longer serving God. And, and, and that's God's, our desire is to serve him. And that's why we need to be very, very careful about those that, 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 that we choose for a life, for those that we court, those that we want to marry, if we intend to be of, of good service for God. Poor relationships have sidetracked and sidelined a lot of people who are going to go into the ministry or they're going to go into some other form of Christian service. And, and so, you know, we, we need to make sure they have the same desire that we do. I want to serve the Lord. I want to do for the Lord. And you want a person that's going to understand that and want the same thing. Because again, like you said, you can get sidelined, you can sidetrack, and, and those desires, those wonderful desires to, to serve God, they, they come to a halt. Samson's experience is unfortunately only one of a multitude of experiences that happens in every age, which illustrates the sad truth of how servicing, service for God is ruined when an unholy marriage takes place in a believer's life. It can be devastating. The, 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 Samson then showed respect after this for the word of God for his parents. He showed disrespect for his parents' wise counsel regarding this proposal of marriage. When Samson told his father and mother about this woman he was interested in, in, he said in verse 2, get her for me. Straight up, just get her for me. Though they disapproved. See, he didn't pay attention whatsoever to his parents' disapproval. He disrespectfully ignored his parents and continued to insist that they get this woman for his wife. And, and, And... I encourage the young people, and I know the young people, when they're in their relationship and they're in love, they, they know that their parents don't know anything. They know all about life. They know all about love. All we need is love. We're going to live happily ever after. They don't see the red flags. They don't understand the road ahead. They've not been there. And yet they won't listen to parents that may be a good role model who have been married, you know, 50 years and, and, and still going and They don't want to hear it. So many young people do just like Samson's doing. They disrespect the good, sanctified counseling about relationships. They won't listen to experience. They won't listen to reason. They won't listen to anybody with wisdom. Their attitude is this. They are going to get married to that carnal man or that carnal woman, that unholy person or that apostate no matter what. They're not going to let anybody talk them out of it. Not their parents, not their friends, not their pastor, no one. They'll continue to go on and and just reject godly counsel. And then one day, and I've seen this over the years, they will hate what they did. Because when you disrespect wisdom, you will miss out on the blessings of God. You will miss out on what God had planned for you because you wanted to settle now. You didn't want to wait. And even though Samson was disrespectful to his parents, in a way you can still kind of applaud him. At least he went to his parents about the marriage. It's always good for a young young man or woman to talk to their parents about their intentions of getting married. 
And parents can be a big help when their children are thinking about marriage. Now, parental opposition to a marriage might be God's way of keeping you from a hell on earth. Now, when parents oppose of a marriage, it may be God's way of telling that child, that young person, wait, wait, because God could be saying, hey, it's not on my schedule for your life at this time. God may be saying through your parents, this is not according to my timetable for you. There's no clearer and no better way to say this than through your parents. You know, if it's God's will that a couple wait, be assured then that, there, that there's a wise and good reason. So, so it's foolish to challenge God's wisdom. And when a child is, is tempted to, to go forward apart from their parents' approval... They have to be very careful that if they do, it is because of the dedication of Christ. Because, yes, you know, it's, you know, we, we are to, to, to hear our parents out. But again, they, they are not the final say. Because, again, if they're both believers and they're praying and they're waiting on the Lord and, and, and God may have you know, given them something and shared something with them, you know what? And, and, and that's the one that they are to follow. But what I'm saying here is that they're not to neglect, reject, or ignore you know, their parents' views and opinions of the relationship. But what Samson did here, hey, it doesn't, it doesn't commend him at all. He wasn't showing any respect for his parents in going to them. He wasn't asking for their counsel. He wasn't saying, hey, mom, dad, what do you think about this person? What do you see? What do you think? What can you tell me? What are the things I should look out for as we're going out and we're developing this relationship? What are the kind of things that I need to pay attention to? Instead, Samson was demanding that his parents do what was the customary thing in that day in proposing a marriage, which was a young man didn't go to the girl and ask her for her hand in marriage like we do today. Instead, he would ask his parents to talk with the girl's parents and request her in marriage for their son. And when he said there in verse 2, get her, the way it's used in verses 2 and 3, it's a technical phrase for a man's parents taking a wife for him. So Samson couldn't marry this girl if his parents didn't go to her parents and make a, a marriage proposal. He needed his parents to make the proposal to her parents. So he wasn't coming to ask them for their advice, you know, showing any uh, family or parental respect. What he was doing was behaving with great disrespect and demanding that they do his bidding. Go get her. And when young people get this way with their parents about their proposed marriage, it won't be a surprise if that marriage is an unpleasant situation down the road. Look at verse 3 and verse 5 now. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she, well, for she pleases me well. Now verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. This is his father and 
and mother, he, his father and mother said to him, you know, Samson, isn't there another woman among the daughters of your brethren, that is, of our people? You know, or among my people that, that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? So it says that Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother. Samson's parents were against this marriage. It was a wise protest on his parents' part. But his parents didn't protest enough. They didn't take their protest far enough. Samson's parents were wise in three ways in protesting their son's marriage. First, they were wise in the position that they held. Because, because it was the same, it's the same position as God's word, as God's law about marriage. Which it clearly forbids an Israelite marrying anyone from the heathen nations around them. Samson's parents stood with the word of God. And you're always wise to support the position of the scriptures. Even though the Bible's position on marriage is the wisest position of all, it comes to marriage, when it comes to marriage, it's definitely not popular with the world. Not even some Christians. And I, several times in years before, when I did a lot of premarital counseling, I would, I would get really unhappy young couples because I would tell one, hey, what, you know what? Your partner's an unbeliever. Yeah, but we're in love and they're almost ready and they're going to church and they like and, and, and this and that. And, you know, and they're just so convinced that it's going to be okay. Six months. And I, I won't marry them anyway. If, when I did, I, I, don't, no, I don't marry a believer with an unbeliever. It's unbiblical. I'm just as responsible for that relationship as the people getting married. Six, seven months, eight months later, I get the call. Pastor Joe, I need to talk to you. My husband, my wife, they don't want to go to church anymore. They say, I go to church too much. It's just not working. I don't have anything to tell you. And I've been straight out. I said, look, in counseling, the Bible warned about this. I said, this is the result. I said, you need to pray. There will be a change in your partner's life, in his attitude with Christ. And so, you know, again, it, it, it happens so frequently. So, you know, it, no marriage, how, how, how bad a marriage situation might be, if you oppose that relationship, you'll be subjected to all kinds of attacks. All kinds of And they'll come from outside and inside the church. A lot of problems in society and the church is due to unholy marriages. But if we have biblical marriage, we'll have good churches, we'll have good homes and good society. Pastors need to stop trying to find loopholes in the Bible to justify approving questionable marriages. And speak up and strongly and speak strongly against marriage situations that don't have the backing of God's word. Samson's parents protested this marriage, his marriage, and it was wise. And now Samson's uh, parents protesting this marriage was wise because it had some good reasoning behind it. Samson's parents wisely reasoned with him about where to get a wife. They said in verse 3, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that could be your wife? You know what? And God 
God will provide a mate for you. He will. You know, but, but don't look for one in, in all the unholy places of the world, you know, clubs and bars and parties. God has a Christian mate for you. But you do have to look in all the right places. And actually, like I said, you don't have to look at all. God can bring her or him to you just like he brought Eve to Adam. Listen in Genesis chapter 2. It says, God said it is not good for man to be alone. God knows it's not good for you to be alone. He says, I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And here's the part. Notice, then the Lord God made a woman from the... And he brought her to the man. He brought her to the man. Of course, Adam couldn't look anywhere because there weren't any. But nonetheless, the point is, the point is that he brought her to him. And he'll do the same thing for us, for you, for those that, that, are, that, 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 that want to mate. He knows it's not good for a man to be alone. Samson's parents, who opposed this unacceptable marriage, used some pretty strong words in protesting this relationship. They called, this Philistine, they called the Philistines uncircumcised, which is a term of reproach. But it accurately described the Philistines. So Samson's parents called sin by its proper name which is always wise to do. Sin is sin. We know it's not always acceptable to do, to call sin, sin. Especially in the days that we're living in. But we have to call sin, sin. Because evil always tries to deceive people by using nice names for sin. To make them more accepting. To make them more palatable. To make them less convicting and less shameful. Like alcoholism, it's no longer, you know, drunkenness. Alcoholism is a disease. Lust is no longer a sin. It's a sexual addiction. I'm sick. I have a sexual addiction. Oh, I have, you know, I have a, a, a you know, um, a disease of alcohol. But we need to call sin by its true name, just like here. The Philistines were called uncircumcised because that's what they are. And God's people have no business flirting with them. Circumcision was more than a rite of passage. For the Jews, it was a sign of their covenant with God. Circumcision marked them as the chosen people, God's special treasure. And that's what we are. We're God's special treasure. And even though Samson's parents protested their son's marriage, they didn't protest it strongly enough. They were outspoken about it. Yeah, we don't like it. It's not good. Samson, can't you, do, can't you find somebody from our own family, the family of God? They spoke about it, but they didn't do anything about it. They argued against the marriage verbally, but they went along with it anyway. And verse 5 says, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and that was to make the proposal. He went, he went with his parents so that they could make the proposal to get the Philistine girl for Samuel. And you know what? It happens in families and in churches often. Oftentimes people protest an unholy marriage the same way. They protest, oh, I, this isn't good. 
they're not a good match. There's, you know, this person or that person. They, they see it. They know it. An objectionable marriage, objectionable marriage proposal comes along and the people will express their opinion. They'll say, they'll express their disapproval of the marriage, but they'll be at the wedding, smiling and cheerfully congratulating the newlyweds. Pastors will do the same thing, even though they know the couple shouldn't be married. For example, and I use the example, a Christian wants to marry an unbeliever. They know the Bible says we're not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, but they'll marry them anyway. And eventually that marriage falls apart. This problem of protesting by words but not taking any action, hey, it's not just in marriages. In other matters besides marriage, people often do the same thing. They do it in regards to the church that they go to, and I've heard that before. They'll come to, hey, Pastor Joe, my pastor said this, and you know, they're, they're, they're going along with this. You know, their doctrine is liberal, and, and the church that the stand is taking, it's not biblical, but they keep going. They keep going. Well, I've been going there for a long time, not really getting fed, but you know, I feel like I'm being unfaithful to the pastor. <laughs> You're being unfaithful to the Lord. And then they give to the offering that furthers that wrong. So their protest is weak, and it's of little use because it's only in words, no action. The only kind of protest that has any effect is that protest whose words are accompanied by an action, a corresponding action. There needs to be more than just talk against evil. We need to take a firm stand against it. And Samson's parents didn't do that. They didn't have to go to Timnah. They didn't have to make the proposal to the Philistine girl's parents. Samson may have gotten mad, you know, at his parents, but they they didn't have to do what Samson said. And if they hadn't gone and made the proposal to this girl's parents, guess what? Samson couldn't have married them, married her. You see, his parents had the ability to stop the unacceptable marriage, but they only complained about it with their words. But they didn't take any action. Look at verse 4. But his father and mother, and, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at the time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. This divine plan... God's plan for this ill-advised marriage was to use it to start delivering Israel from the Philistines. Now this verse, and I already hear the minds going, well, wait a minute, if God used this marriage to do his will, then isn't it, why is God getting, no. This verse has been misunderstood by many people to mean that Samson's main reason for wanting to marry the Philistine girl was to create an opportunity for him to attack the Philistines, the enemy of God's people. These people, the ones who believe that, you know, that that in a sense God put them up to it, these people believe Samson was moved by the Holy Spirit to use this relationship to start the attack on the Philistines. First of all, the word he in verse 4 can only be speaking about the Lord and not Samson. And many people misunderstand the word he is referring to Samson. 
If it did, then it would give a reason to believe that Samson had ulterior motives in this relationship and that God moved in Samson's heart and gave him this plan to get with this girl. Also, there's no hint in any of Samson's actions and words that he was anything but sincere in wanting to marry this girl. Just, just for the marriage's sake alone. If he meant other than what is suggested in the text, then we can make the Bible mean just about anything that we want. But interpreting what he said correctly requires us to understand what is said by Samson to mean that he was very sincere about wanting to marry this girl because he was interested in her. He wasn't deceitfully romancing her so that he could uh, attack the Philistines and start to break their oppressive rule over the Israelites. And then lastly, the circumstances and the events resulting from this relationship, which did bring about the opportunity for Samson to attack the Philistines, were not circumstances that Samson could have been planning when he demanded his parents to go get this girl for his wife. The killing of the lion, mentioned earlier in verse 5, which did bring about the opportunity for Samson to attack the Philistines, were not circumstances, again, that he was planning. The killing of the lion and the finding the honey in the lion, which inspired the riddle that eventually brought the confrontation with the Philistines, it came as a result of divine intervention. It wasn't forethought and good planning by Samson. So we can't believe verse 4 is referring to Samson planning this relationship just to bring about an occasion to attack the Philistines. God's plan in this situation was to overrule this, his disobedience and to use it to bring judgment on the Philistines. That's the meaning of our text here. God had decided it was time to start dealing with the Philistines and to stop their oppression of the Israelites. And he was going to deal with them no matter whether Samson cooperated or not. We, don't, we can't get in God's way. God's going to do what he wants to do. God would for sure prefer to use Samson's obedience to attack the Philistines. But if Samson doesn't obey and he keeps on pursuing this relationship with the Philistine woman, then God is going to use those circumstances to bring about some judgment upon the Philistines. He will take those circumstances that he didn't plan, but he'll use them. He'll use them to do his will. So the marriage was God's doing in, in a sense because he permitted it and he overruled it for bringing Samson into a confrontation with the Philistines. You see, all of this gives praise and glory and honor to the sovereign power of God. You see, God's too wise for any man to thwart his plans. So, again, all of this just praises and glorifies the sovereign power of God. He's the one who's in control of every single event, everything that happens. Man cannot outsmart God. Man might act totally contrary to God's plans and to God's purposes, but you know what? God's going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to accomplish whatever he desires. I like what Psalm 76.10 says. It says, Human defiance or disobedience only enhances your glory for you use it as a weapon. With so much 
theology, so much of, uh, of theology today portraying God as a weak and helpless being, we need to focus more <clears throat> on verses like verse, uh, like verse 4 here in, in Judges in order to be reminded that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, and he will do whatever he wants no matter what man does. God will overrule and overpower. And just to make sure that we don't make distorted applications of God using the disobedience of man to accomplish good things, we need to be reminded of the fact that God uses evil to accomplish good things. He doesn't cause the evil. He doesn't create the evil, but he will use the evil to accomplish good things. But in no way does it suggest that God's justifying the evil or encouraging the evil. It's just the opposite. God punishes evil no matter how he uses it. Though the Philistines' evil was used by God to bring needed chastisement on the Israelites in oppressing them, yet God's going to judge the Philistines for oppressing the Israelites. And in the same way, though Samson's disobedience in his relationship with this girl in Timnah and with other unholy girls, and it resulted in... it resulted in providing occasions for God to attack the Philistines. And yet Samuel, I'm sorry, Samson was not pardoned for these evil things that he did. He eventually paid a terrible price for his sin of pursuing these women. Even though God overruled it again and again to judge the Philistines. F.B. Meyer said, God overruled the results, though that didn't relieve Samson of the blame. But regardless of the obvious fact that God's use of evil to accomplish good things doesn't make evil right. And there are still those who will be ready to say or to make that application. Hey, you know, it's God's fault. God did it. God created this situation. Why, why should the man be, you know, uh, punished for it? Not true. We see it in, in divorce. Some people, you know, some divorced people insist that their divorce and their remarriage had to be the will of God because, oh, we're so in love. We're so at peace. It brought about circumstances that resulted in their getting saved. And, 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 I, and I remember hearing that all the time. You know, that it, you know, you know a, a man or a woman breaks up. They're, they're no longer with their partner. They're, they're still legally married, but they're now dating somebody else. Oh, Pastor Joe, we're so happy and everything is going so well and we're so at peace. And I said, you're at peace because you're not working at making your marriage. You've left that situation. You've got a false peace because God's will is not in this. You know, you don't have grounds for biblical separation or divorce. So, you know, none of this, it's a false security. It's a false peace. You're out of God's will. But because they're so happy and they're feeling so good, it has to be God. False sense of security. That's all it is. And, oh, and, and even though they got saved, it had to be God's what we got saved as a result. No, this is a misapplication of God's use of evil. And it can't be supported by Scripture. And it's filled with corruption, just, just as all such misapplications are. What that does, it greatly perverts the grace of God. And it greatly limits the power of God because they've taken God out of the situation. I've decided to do this on my own because I can't take it. I don't want to do this anymore. 
It perverts the grace of God because it has grace justifying the evil of divorce. And it has God justifying a change of marriage partners, even if that will bring about someone's salvation. Listen to Jude 1.4. Some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. New Living Translation of Jude 1.4. This is the Bible's comment on, and view on that kind of perverted thinking. It limits the power of God because it says God wasn't, wasn't powerful enough to bring about the circumstances that would have brought about salvation if we hadn't got divorced. So in limiting God's power, they don't seem to ever think about the fact that if they hadn't gotten divorced, they wouldn't have experienced the, God, the blessings of God upon them much more than they had gotten divorced, not much, you know, not much less as they conclude. Man, if we hadn't gotten divorced, man, we wouldn't experience these God's, God's blessings. But if they hadn't gotten divorced, they would experience more of God's blessings. Even though, again, God used the evil of divorce to bring about their salvation, they will experience due chastisement for their breaking of the holy marriage vows. How much, how much better it would have been if they had been saved without being divorced, contrary to their unholy reasoning. The only way to sanction, you know, to approve of, uh, to bless any action is by the word of God. Not by, some, not by something that appears to be successful or, or, or some great development or some favorable situation or my warm and fuzzy feelings. That's not how I determine what is a work of God. But a lot of people today, you know, they're, they're, they, don't, they don't know how to determine right and wrong. Few people, they are able to determine right and wrong, except on the basis of, the, the only way they, they, they figure out what's right and wrong is based on outward success. It, it's, it turned out in my favor. They never measure actions. They never measure the actions. They never judge or base the actions upon the word of God to see if something is right or wrong. So if Samson's unholy marriage results in judgment on the Philistines, they will approve of the marriage. Hey, God did it for his purpose. If divorce or other immoral behavior results in the salvation of some soul, they'll approve of the unholy behavior. Souls might be saved and good things may result in spite of the sinfulness of man and his methods. But that won't be to the man's credit, nor will it justify unholy means. In closing, Samuel Riddit said this. He said, it will only be the credit of, of the grace and power of God. God's purposes will be accomplished in spite of my disobedience, but I can never use his purpose to endorse my disobedience. Father, we thank you so much for, Father, for the great word here. And, and Father, the insight that these five verses give us, Lord. Father, help us always, Father, to judge all things by your word and through your word, God. It is the lamp, it is the guide, it is the light to our path, to our decisions, to everything that we do. Let us, let us not do anything apart 
from your word, Lord. May we look to you, God, for every answer, for all the directions in life. Father, for all the decisions that we make. But Father, we thank you that we serve an all-wise, infinitely wise God, an omnipotent, all-powerful God, all-knowing God, an ever-present God. Therefore, because you know all things and, and you overpower all things and you're everywhere all the time, everything you tell us, God, is right because you have all the facts. So, Lord, we thank you. May you bless our time and, and bless our, 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 the rest of the week, God, as we go before you and and prepare us for uh, Wednesday and Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday, Lord. We thank you, Lord. And we give you honor and glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.